Hey, it's Laura. If you're listening to this, you're not hearing the complete unedited version of this conversation. If you want in on that, you can get it by becoming a TMST Plus member. Just head over to our website at tmstpod.com and click support. All right, enjoy the show. Hey, it's Laura. I'm going to read you something, so settle in for a minute. It's a poem. If you listen to a woman breathe, she'll tell you exactly what she's looking for, or if she's looking at all, what she wants, what she needs, right there in that light year between breaths. She will draw you a picture, a picture so real you can become a part of the very thing she desires or choose to steal away before the dawn. If you stay, train up your ears because what she wants, needs, or desires is subject to change in a heartbeat. But always remember, if you commit, be sure and hold your ground, but never, ever hold your breath because be sure she's also listening to you. That's called Inhale, Exhale. And it's written by Frank X. Walker, today's guest on the show. Frank is Kentucky's former poet laureate and one of the co-founders of the Afrolashian Poets, a grassroots group of poets of color living in the Appalachian region. 30 years after their founding, the Afrolashian poets continue to dismantle the idea that Appalachia is a white region devoid of literature and the arts. For decades, Frank's work has embodied a deeply personal approach and challenged us to see poetry as an urgent voice that can touch on our experience of living in a way other written works can't. That's definitely been my experience of poetry. Today, Frank is the director of the MFA program at the University of Kentucky, and he's mentored hundreds of artists along their path. He's the author and editor of a dozen books of poetry, and as you'll hear, Frank is just a lovely, thoughtful, and really cool guy. I loved engaging in his work, and I think you'll be really glad to meet him. Enjoy. Thank you so much for being here. I'm very excited to talk to you. And I'm just going to kind of jump right in if that's cool with you. Just jump in. That works for me too. Okay. So will you tell people what it means to be a poet laureate? What does that mean? (sighs) You know, I think it means different things in different places. In Kentucky, to be the Kentucky Poet Laureate, it means that a committee met somewhere and they had a long list of individuals who had been nominated to be the next Poet Laureate. And when the battle royal was over, your name was still at the top of the list. And it's not a, it's not a paid gig. It's a lot of work. 
but because the previous laureates had already laid a foundation of expectations from librarians, uh, no matter where they are in the state, you know, uh, you might live four hours from that library, but a librarian would might, might email you and say, uh, can you come tomorrow and talk to our writing club at six o'clock and, and, and expect you to be there? And they might add, we've had every previous poet laureate before you, so we're right. looking so forward to this. Don't be the one. Don't be the one. <laughs> it's a big deal in Kentucky, you know. And we, you know, I think the literary community enjoys a lot of support from bookstores and, and English departments and, and writers at every level. And to, to have that honor bestowed upon you comes with a certain set of expectations, but it also, you know, there are a lot of benefits. You know, for instance, the unexpected benefit for me was, you know, when I drive into my hometown now, no matter which road I take in, there's a sign that says, home of Frank X. Walker, Kentucky Poet Laureate, 2013-2014. Uh, and, wow. you know, so every time I drive in, I, you know, I'm looking for that sign. My relatives <laughs> do the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think everybody loves that sign except the ex-girlfriends who still live in town. Uh, <laughs> and they have to see it. Right. It's like, him again, him again. <laughs> Oh, again, can't get rid of them. Uh, and, you know, I think it says a lot about how our town values literacy and not mm -hmm. just football championships, to, to put it on a sign. So yeah. It's, that never would have happened without the laureate title. And it made my family Very so cool. proud. Yeah. So that was another question I had. Were there a lot of artists in your family, and where did you get this... Where, how did you become an artist yourself? What was the influence there? You know, I, I would give it, well, first I would say, it depends on how you define artists. I would say there are a lot of creative people in the family and everybody expressed their creativity very differently. But the artist, the first recognized artist, at least for me, it was my mother. And it wasn't just what she could do in the kitchen with a potato, but she could serve every day and make us think it was a, a different something, you know, mashed, fried, hash, baked, every day. Uh, but she also, while raising all of us, I remember her taking a, a home correspondence class in, in floral decorating. And she was, had all these materials. She was making these little silk flowers and floral arrangements. You know, I was, I was probably still in sixth grade, going into middle school. And to see her start for this thing and come back at the end of the day, and there's a whole bouquet just sitting there, and it was gorgeous. I mean, I think that's how she exhibited her artistry. She wouldn't have said she was an artist if you looked at what she did with a sewing machine, but, I mean, she made at least three wedding dresses that belonged to my siblings. And you know, there was a certain period of our lives where the entire family, except me, uh, we're part of a Pentecostal church. And so the clothing was really strict as far as hemlines and length of dress and skirt, etc. She made all the clothes for all the girls and women in the family. And she made them look good. I mean, it didn't look like just an ugly long skirt. I mean, she would study, you know, images from magazines and, and have these patterns in her head and could sit down with a piece of, of cloth and 
running back and forth under this machine and inside out, you know, and then iron it and turn it, turn it over and boom, it's just a beautiful garment. I think that absolutely was, was, was artistic, was artistry. Though she never claimed the title, she made being creative okay. Did you recognize that at the time as something? I think not at the time because I, I thought, because I, I I know it was special for sure, but I think the term art was somehow tied to art class in school, and that meant you know you were painting, drawing, or making something out of clay. It was very I had a very limited idea of what art is or what art could have been, and I didn't recognize it then that you know my aunts who were styling hair, you know, you know what my grandmother could do in the kitchen. Even my, my grandfather, what he did around the farm, you know, he was trying to find ways to be creative, to survive. But I think growing up in that space, it really felt normal for me to, to want to create just anything. So when did it turn to, to words? How did you discover the, the magic of poetry for you as the... Well, I think... The words came before the poetry. I think the words came along with the images. I was a big comic book collector as a kid. And uh, I started making, drawing and writing my own comic books, you know, by the time I was in the seventh grade. And so I, I was trying to develop both things at the same time. I wasn't able to think about them separately. Poetry did not become a, a real thing Till high school when I took a creative writing class and my teacher told me that's what I was doing and, and encouraged it. And I had a chance to be published as a high school student. And then after I thought about it, I realized that I had written my first poem in middle school, February the 13th, after being bowled over by one Darlene Bartleston. And, um, oh, I knew it was going to be a love poem. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, you know, I struggled all night to crafted and then I wrote it and put it inside of a card and, and bought a big candy bar and on the 14th the next day I saw her in the library and I walked up to her and I gave her this big candy bar and this card with a poem inside of it and she turned around and handed the candy bar to her boyfriend oh my god no that's not the outcome I was hoping for me either uh, well, well, what it taught me was poetry hurts. Uh, who would want to be a poet? Yeah. So I stayed away from that yeah. for at least another year and a half. And my high school teachers, you know, really did a good job broadening the idea of what poetry could be, uh, and that it didn't have to hurt. <laughs> um, it can hurt, though. Oh, it can. I, I heard it can. It still does. I heard. Uh, yeah, it does. In a, in. I heard, I don't know, maybe it was David White say that poetry is the language for which the ego has no defense. Mm, I love that. And, and I thought that, that that was true in my, in my experience. Yeah, if you have... That it reaches you. It's kind of like music. Music is that way for me as well. I would agree. Same here. I mean, I think that some of my probably stronger influences earlier in my development were all musicians. Um, singers who had powerful lyrics that just kind of stayed with you, followed you around. Curtis Mayfield, Stevie Wonder, even James Brown when he was being political and not just trying to entertain, uh, you know, wrote most of his own 
work and some of that stuff was just hauntingly powerful and still relevant today so yeah before i was reading the great poets i was listening to the great musicians and being influenced as a as an artist not just a poet i think just and politically at the same time you know i think of myself as a artist activist and that activism was ignited uh listening to marvin gaye's what's going on and anthems like yeah. that yeah, well, that that's leads me into what I want to talk. So I want to talk about your work now. So you, you have to school me here because I'm I have lived in the Midwest and I've lived in the Northeast now for 20 years, never in the South. So am I saying? Well, I didn't even know of the term Appalachian, but Appalachian or is it Appalachian? I've, on this side of the mountain, we say Appalachian and Afrolachian, or if you get it wrong, okay. we'll throw an Appalachia. Um. <laughs> okay. Well, I asked. I asked for that reason. I don't want to be that person. So the Afrolachian poets, which you came up with that term, Afrolachian, they've staked their claim in, in the literary landscape because of you and because of the voices and the subject matter. So Tell us about the genesis of the Afrolashian poets and what that looks like today. Okay, uh, I'm going to go back 30 years. And this year, 2021, is our 30th anniversary as a group, as an active group of, of writers, a collective. Back in 91, you know, we were all getting excited about a, a major reading that was going to happen at the Opera House in downtown Lexington which was a big deal to have a poetry reading or a literary event at the Opera House. This was a huge deal. And I'd never been in the Opera House. Most of my friends and fellow students had never been in the Opera House either. But right before it happened that week, they changed the name of the event. You know, originally they were, it was celebrating the best of, of the Appalachian literary scene. But they invited Nikki Finney, who had been flown in from California, to join the, the reading because she was also going to be joining the faculty at UK. And so they changed the name of it and took the Appalachian out of it. But nobody explained why. You know, so that that evening after the reading was so powerful, I went home and I pulled out my journal. And I figured I had to write something because I, I I was floating from from the event. Then it occurred to me that Appalachian was no longer on the program and it had, had kind of fallen out over the course of the last two weeks. So I looked up Appalachian and in the dictionary, it said white residents of the mountainous regions of Appalachia. And I was stunned to see that in writing because my first question after that was, well, what do you call the people who live there who aren't white? Because I had been traveling through the region and I had relatives in the region and I knew there were people of color in the region, and to declare only the white resident to be Appalachian seemed, you know, not only unfair, it meant that I could never be a great Appalachian writer because, by definition, I was not white. And because I couldn't afford a therapist, and because I trust my journal more than anything, you know, I tried to tease that idea out, you know, what, why did they have to make that, that declaration? But more importantly, what did people of color in the region 
and people who fit the definition, what did they have in common? Forget about the just kind of very thin difference between black and white, but the people I knew, I didn't recognize that much of a difference. And so the poem I ended up writing, you know, tried to talk about the love of food, the the oral tradition, the importance of music and family and storytelling. Uh, and it just got warmer and warmer. And then at the very end of that thing I was writing, you know, I ended up writing, imagine being an Afro-Latin poet. Uh, and I didn't think much about it. I just felt good about it. And, and we were already meeting on Monday nights. And so a couple of days later, I took the poem to our, our weekly gathering of, of bringing in new work and sharing and having it workshopped. And we were operating as a, as a loose group, but we weren't, we didn't have a name. We were just meeting every Monday night from six to eight. You and a group of a group of, of, poets. of of people who love words, uh, writers, poets, and yep. you okay. know all beginning writers. Uh, I was probably the only English major in the group, but some were imagined themselves as as hip hop lyricists. Others just love reading poetry, but we all had, we were kindred spirits, and we trusted each other enough to you know to close the door and share this new work once a week. And they heard the poem and and loved the word. And, and we spent a lot of time talking about the word and what it meant, what it could mean. And before we left, we agreed to name ourselves the Afro-Latin Poets. And a lot of people, you know, have been drawn to the definition that now appears in a lot of dictionaries that connects Afro-Latin with African roots. But the Afro-Latin poets, when we were first named, were Puerto Rican, uh, Asian American. Uh, we had Gurney Norman was our made him an unofficial member. He didn't have to come, but we lo loved him so much, we wanted to make him a member. Uh, we weren't thinking about limitations. We were trying to think about the fact that the dictionary definition left people out. We wanted a word that included everybody else who were left out of that definition, and. You know, that was 30 years ago, and we've probably added 35 additional members in that 30 years. Wow. That's the short version. I love, I love hearing about the genesis of ideas, any, or any creative works. I, I love hearing, how, like that, because that, I, I read that poem of yours with that line at the end, imagine being an Afro-Lashian poet, and... I was like, damn, that's good. When I think of Appalachia, I'd consider it a white, a white person's, you know, white hillbillies. That's what I think of. And that's even portrayed in movies and books. So how does your poetry chip away at that? Poetry and art. Because I, I feel like that's been a, a decent part of your activism is, is telling that story. I think that's fair. Uh, and I mean, chipping away, maybe even taking off too big a piece at a time, maybe slowly dissolves or maybe even just challenges preconceived notions of what Appalachia really is. But even in the ARC, the Appalachian Regional Commission definition and restriction of what is legally Appalachia includes 
Pittsburgh and Birmingham. Wow. You know anything about Pittsburgh, uh, you know it's not all I white, do. first of all. Uh, no. <laughs> you might even... There's Birmingham. Yeah. And then there's Birmingham, and you think about Birmingham and the whole civil rights history and struggle. I mean, it's all over television and books. So it challenges that notion. Of, and if you actually look at the region and, and study the history of the region, it's even further deconstructed and challenged as an all-white space when you consider luminaries like Bill Withers, uh, Roberta Flack, Nina Simone, Carter G. Woodson, George Clinton, Henry Louis Gates, T.D. Jakes. <laughs> I mean, the list goes on and on. But you almost never hear those individuals, especially Carter G. Woodson, who's considered the father of African-American history, you never hear their name talked about in a space where the Appalachia is being discussed. And I think because of that, you never get the chance to put Snuffy Smith and, and Daisy Duke up against a, a Nikki Giovanni and Sonia Sanchez and these individuals who kind of challenge that one side of that, that coin. If you ever had them in the same conversation, you could never sell this idea of an all-white homogeneous uncultured, unlettered space that is so easy to caricature over the years by, by television and mass media. You know, I think that mass media so does, you know, starting with deliverance because that's so iconic for a certain age group, you know, and Beverly Hillbillies and the Dukes of Hazzard. Uh, if, you buy, if you buy those media projects as a true representation of the space, then it's easy to believe it's, it's the caricature. But you add the other names and throw in Negro League Baseball to that, you know, throw in August Wilson's 10 plays, uh, it doesn't hold up. And I think the greatest litmus test for me was Kentucky's a red state, you know, but of 120, I think 24 counties, 67 counties had Black Lives Matters rallies or Breonna Taylor protests in the state of Kentucky alone. Similar thing happened in, in neighboring states that shocked people because they thought those kinds of protests or events could not happen in a space that they believed was an all-white space. Uh, and it wasn't just progressive white people. I mean, it was people of color who actually lived there and progressive white people who were saying, oh, this is, this is about justice and this is the side I'm standing on. And those conflicts, you know, in some cases, Fathers on one side of the street with guns and their children across the street with signs, you know, protesting, uh, trying to figure out how to negotiate that conflict, that generational divide, because you know, their children, because of the Internet, because of exposure, because of new information in the classrooms that their parents didn't get, saw the world very differently than they did, and definitely than their grandparents and even different than a lot of their parents. You know, so that for me meant that you know, we know we didn't start it, but, you know, we even know we were part of retelling the story and getting people to look at the region very differently and making them comfortable with aligning themselves with something that was just about a sense of right and wrong and not with the color of their skin or what their parents believed, what their grandparents believed. Yeah, you're just making me think that it goes back to, uh, you know, art has always played a huge part in, in civil rights movements and activism. 
and you know if you take poetry you know what i just said of poetry is a language for which the ego has no defense but i think that applies to almost all art it's very easy to see art as entertainment and not as valuable as it is and i heard you in one of your lectures or maybe something that that was online maybe it was your creative mornings talk or something like that so you couldn't imagine a world without art experiencing a world without art and and it's not because of and for for me it's entertainment there there's a beauty in entertainment to it but it's also um such a primary way in which we can he actually hear each other or or meet each other beyond the the limitations of our minds say yeah. absolutely agree. beyond the limitations of our arguments i agree with that it's something about an appreciation for uh, an art form that draws different people to the same space. You know, you, you both love dance. Uh, you don't even speak the same language, but there's something about that art that makes you more human and expressing your appreciation for it that makes you more attracted to somebody who also appreciates it. Uh, and I think not. it doesn't necessarily erase, but it doesn't erase your differences or the boundaries, but it makes the other person look more like you uh, because Obviously, they feel like you. They love like you. Uh, and I've, I've seen art be used as a great kind of icebreaker for folks when the goal is reconciliation or you know, trying to meet people halfway. Uh, I mean, art is a powerful medium even for, for healing people. Uh, you know, there's a lot of new studies and work being developed about you know, using art to, to heal and and changed even the color of painting institutions because it has an impact on, on how people feel. And having worked in a lot of art programs over the years, you know, I've seen what art does for young people, especially you know teenagers with, you know, who don't even know who they are every day. They wake up and they're a different person every day because their hormones are bouncing in every direction yeah. and they're trying to figure it out. Yeah, I live with one of those. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like, I hate you. I love you. I hate you. I love you. Um, <laughs> and they're making art. You know, we've got one upstairs. And, um, mm. but I, you know, there, that discovery, there's such a safe space that they don't get that watching television passively, but producing art, they can express themselves. You know, they can be angry, they can be in love, uh, they can try to understand what they're feeling and how to articulate it, you know, as a, a color or a sound or the right combination of words. Yeah, you know, I think art in general. I think it's necessary to to really express and appreciate being human, you know. And it's a way to articulate our humanity. And you know, not, probably not all art, uh, you know, but most art has the capacity to reach people, regardless of what language they speak. You know, especially if it's visual art. Um, yeah, yeah. Music too. Music even more. So you know, I think that. And I think about the, the space my mother created for us, you know, watching her work and then being in the space where she's also listening to music. Uh, music was a big thing in our house because we didn't have a television. I mean, we listened to music so closely that, you know, we learned the songs and sang them together. And, and something about singing songs together in a, in, a, in a group context that really changed what music can do. You know, by the time we got to the point where we were personalizing songs we all knew, uh, then it became art. Would you mind reading from Afrolashian? It was hard to pick just one. Uh, 
Yeah. I know okay. we have limited time here. I thought I, I would read that poem that we referenced earlier. I think it could stand on its own because we already kind of introduced it. This is what I was trying to figure out, what it meant to be in a space and, and debate whether or not I was part of it, uh, and what it meant to be in Kentucky, and, and all the kind of iconic stereotypes that come with Kentucky. So this is called Afrolatcha, for Gurney, Norman, and Ann Shelby. Thoroughbred racing and hee-haw are burdensome images for Kentucky sons venturing beyond the Mason-Dixon. Anywhere in Appalachia is about as far as you could get from our house in the projects. Yet a mutual appreciation for fresh greens and cornbread, an almost heroic notion of family and porches, makes us kinfolk somehow. But having never ridden bareback or side saddle, and being inexperienced at cutting, hanging, or chewing tobacco, yet still feeling complete and proud to say that some of the bluegrass is black, enough to know that being colored and all is generally lost somewhere between the Dukes of Hazard and the Beverly Hillbillies. But if you think making shine from corn is as hard as Kentucky coal, imagine being an Afrolatchian poet. 30 years old, that poem. What were you doing at that time, work-wise? Were you, did you call yourself a poet then? Or were you still? I think I thought of myself more of a visual artist back then, who also wrote poetry and plays. I was part of a theater group called the Message Theater. Uh, we did a community theater group that did political, original political plays. Uh, so my activism was already doing its work. The poetry was, you know, it was kind of a quiet, private thing for me. And it was really more introspective. And, and it was how I was figuring out the world. I always joked about, you know, I was only a poet because I couldn't afford a therapist. I, I really meant that, you know, and it has. Yeah, I, I know. I, I, I've been there. <laughs> not, I've been there. And it said a lot about how and why I went to the page. You know, I needed to figure stuff out. A lot of the work takes seed in trying to figure out something that makes no sense to me. And sometimes just asking the question is, is poem enough. Um, then other people recognize a similar struggle and can uh, empathize with you and understand just what you felt because they felt the same thing. Uh, so a lot of the work is about social justice, it's about family and identity and place. And, uh, and I think defending my place here uh, because a lot of people would look at this space and not see me and, and being rendered invisible was just something that once my activism kicked into gear, being made or to feel invisible or muted was something I was pushing back against. So poetry and creating and being an artist and expressing that seemed like a, a safe place to do it. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True, and I co-created the show with Laura. We built TMST and our online community with the hope of creating a sane spot on the internet. We're really passionate about the ad-free nature of this work. 
Our belief is that this project will work best if we're not hustling to keep advertisers happy. And we keep our attention on you, the TMST community. This is where you can play a major role. TMST Plus is the membership group that helps to keep this podcast going. Whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are vital to this experiment. As a TMST Plus member, you get to join Laura for member-only events, send in questions for the guests, hear the complete unedited interviews, and connect with other TMST community members. You know, sometimes we feel like we can't make a difference in the world. With a TMST Plus membership, you can be keeping this space alive and thriving for a one-time gift or for as little as 10 bucks a month. You can find the link in the show description. And then please head over to tmstpod.com right now to support the show. And thanks. So in 2017, sort of, uh, I suppose it's ironically given the past two years, but in 2017, you, you described the current environment as part of a painful transition, you said, and you believe artists would, would dive into the curve and ride it like a wave. So how do you think that played out, you know, what's happened in the past year in America? Yeah, you know, I think I personally felt a, a certain responsibility to record what was happening in real time. And I wrote a whole book of poetry called Masculine Black that were just pandemic and protest poems that tried to... What's it called? uh, Mask Man. These were poems that were written uh, last year mostly that started in April during National Poetry Month. Because so much was happening that was brand new. And the news was so depressing. Uh, My wife and I would fall asleep at night just talking about what we just saw on the news. And so I would, I would dream about this stuff and then wake up with the same images in my head uh, and same questions on my mind. And I could only go forward by going straight to the studio and, and writing something. Uh, and because it was also, by this time it was April and National Poetry Month, uh, my friends and I annually, we commit to writing a poem a day for April. I decided I would just write about uh, the pandemic I wasn't thinking about a book at the time. At the end of the month, I was still writing about the pandemic because it, it didn't go away. You know, it wasn't this kind of flash in the pan thing. It was increasing and getting more complex. And then when the George Floyd incident happened, everything got even more complex because these things are all now stacked on top of each other. And the news was even harder to watch. You know, so I added protest poems to interpret what was happening on the news. And the thing I did different, you know, usually I write in isolation, uh, but because so many people were trying to ask and answer the same questions, I started posting early drafts of these poems on Facebook. And I didn't read the responses, I just wanted to share them with people. Uh, my wife was reading the responses and she urged me to keep doing it, that people were appreciating, you know, having a chance to, to use it as a springboard to dialogue about something that just happened in the news or as this thing was escalating. And we were figuring out, you know, how it was going to impact our lives, you know, being shut in or uh, wearing masks. Every bit of that was brand new. Um, and what people appreciated the most, it seemed, was being able to 
discuss what was happening in their lives with other people who weren't in the same house. So that kind of forced separation to have it early on sent people to social media to have conversations about what was happening. So we were, you know, I think we were providing therapy for each other and ourselves in that space. I was still writing those poems every day through the end of July. And the publisher contacted me and said, you know, what are you gonna do with all those poems? You, you know, did you have plans? I said, I'm trying to understand what's happening every day. I'm not thinking about- I'm trying to survive <laughs> this, right. She said, we see this manuscript, you need to send us something, you know, because we think this is timely and we can have it turned around by November. And this was July, and I was thinking, you know, books take a year and a half to <laughs> go from conversation to print. We also believe that it would be over by December, and so I had four months to help make a book and then to push it. And now, this April, I was thinking, you know, I stopped too soon. I should have kept writing. And I've even contemplated starting again just because of the Delta variant. Uh, but I'm afraid that that energy will give it more life and it'll last another year and a half. I mean, for me, it's, it's, um, it's like breathing. It's like, you know, looking at something and talking about what you're looking at. And then the work starts in the crafting process, you know, trying to turn this rough draft into what qualifies as a poem. It's easier for me because that's what I teach. You know, I teach novices and, and anywhere from, you know, high school, up to graduate school uh, level poets, you know, how to perfect their craft. That's my, you know, vocation and, and application to be in the middle of all these words and art making that so many people find useful because it's a, it's a different kind of thing to do. Um, you know, so it's, it's harder to say that, you know, I'm a, even a poet because once I say that, then it, it leaves out visual artist, it leaves out playwright, it leaves out the fiction that uh, I've been able to write because of the pandemic. You know, I think that a lot of people felt themselves shut down because of the pandemic and unable to create anything. But for me, it was the one thing I hadn't had, which was long stretches of uninterrupted time to create art. Right. So I, yep. in the last year and a half, as dire as it's been for the rest of the world, I've made more art and written more than I ever have in my entire life. Uh, I finished a, finished wow. a novel, I wrote a children's book. Really? My third art exhibit. Had you written a novel before? I've been, I've been working at it, you know, trained as a fiction writer since my yeah. undergraduate years, but I could, never, I could never find the time to finish a whole book of that length. When I finished the first draft, my editor said it's too long. <laughs> that, How long was it? Uh, 600 and something pages. Did you write it during the pandemic, like through that period? And did the idea start before then or did it all come together in the past 18 months, two it, years? It was, uh, I would say this is a project that has been alive for 10 years. If not for, okay. for the pandemic, it would still be just kind of inching along. Sitting there. Because for me, writing fiction requires long blocks of time that I never had before because I've been so busy doing other things, administrating, right. you know, raising right. children, teaching. So I want to ask more about the, the novel. Can you talk about what the novel's about? Or is it like you can't do that right now? Uh, I, I'll tell you some things about it, you know, so that nobody, okay, nobody steals my idea. Uh, well, 
It's about two writers who don't know their father and son yet when they first meet. Oh my God, really? Okay. Uh, the son knows that this is his father, but the father doesn't know that he even has a son. You know, you know he's been in prison for 20 years. The son is, is a college student who's writing, but he's, he's been taught by the academy and he's only read the canon. And he has ideas about writing that are almost in conflict with his father's self-education about writing and what he should be writing. And it's set in a mythical town in Kentucky at the edge of Appalachia. Love it. That sounds like a pretty damn good plot, (laughs) I have to say. You have a collection called About Flight that dealt with addiction in your family and the pain and the havoc that that delivers, which is very close to my heart. All the work I do, and including my writing, is, is about that, my own experience and, and others. So can you tell us about that collection? Yeah, it's, uh, it was a pleasant surprise when I realized that it was a collection, that there were enough poems about the same subject I've been writing about Forever since I started writing, it seems like. Um, let's let me go backwards. I'm one of eleven kids. Three of my siblings are addicts, and only one is sober currently. And their addiction is not a recent thing. Their addiction, collectively, if you add up all of their stuff, you know, all three of them. It's, the sister's been sober three years. The two brothers, their addiction is now going into its third decade, both of them. Which means that, you know, we have, the, the rest of the family have raised their kids, have visited them in jail and prison, have been in the face of every part of their life, every stage of their addiction, uh, from when we didn't know it was an addiction, you know, when they were masking it and just borrowing money for more and more ridiculous reasons and never paying it back you know, until and we were the last to know that there were problems because we were too close to it. And they were so good at masking it, I think. So I started writing poems 30 years ago about this experience. And it was, it was hard then, and it wasn't, you know, it was a thing that my mother was really squeamish about. I mean, she was you know, very protective of the family. Uh, she considered herself my first editor. And there were poems that she read in mine that she said, you are not allowed to publish this until I'm dead. And I understood that, that she felt that strongly, that she didn't, she didn't want to have the conversations with other family members about those issues. She just, and, and I respected that, and I, I, I obeyed her. You know, she's been... Uh, on the other side for almost 15 years now. And at some point, maybe it was inspired by a jail visit, um, I started pulling those poems together and saw that, you know, there was quite a bit of work there. And I'd been visiting prisons and and, uh, rehab centers around the state and in other states. It seemed like everywhere I went in prison, most people I talked to, especially young people in the juvenile centers in Alabama and Tennessee, all the issues for them that were considered criminal were connected to, to drugs. 
either from selling it or using it or their addiction being treated like a crime. And so I, I wanted to do something to have a, a product that I could give away. And so I submitted the work to, to a press and they loved it. And my wife took a, a picture for the cover. Uh, we were very involved in, in, in the packaging of it. And you know, for the first year, we basically just gave them away. You know, when I would go to addiction centers, I would arrive with a stack of these books and just you know sign and leave them. Uh, and that felt, that was like a paycheck for me because it allowed me to, I think to experience something good in a space that everything about this space had always been, had always tasted bad for me because of my siblings' choices and how it, it impacted the rest of the family. And the fact that they were still in it meant that I was still in it. And I wasn't looking necessarily to feel good about it. I, I needed to feel better uh, and to understand that there was something I could do. And, sh and I found that sharing our collective story was something that allowed other people to share their stories. And so when I would go visit some places, they'd have the book in advance. And then I got invited to even more spaces, particularly high schools uh, that were separated from traditional school because these kids had gotten in trouble and were either somehow directly related to drugs. And then it became, you know, this social program. Uh, and, and more than just poetry. And, and it was more than just poeting. Uh, it was almost mission work uh, around that book. And uh, I, think, I think I've purchased more copies of that book from the press than, than almost everybody else. Uh, because I, I still know that I need to give them away. Uh, all the time and sometimes I meet people at other places and based on the question they ask in the audience I'll say I have something for you come see me after the reading or I'll meet a kid somewhere and I'll reach my backpack and say you know this makes me think about the brother you were just talking about read this and share it with him you know and it's been I mean I don't know how else to describe it but it's been necessary and it's, it's provided some healing for me you know, my brother heard one of the poems and has since been convinced that everything I've written and write is about him. <laughs> uh, oh, boy. And I'm like, well, not quite. But uh, so, and he's very proud of that, you know. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I have that. Your life is that interesting, but that, I, I can't stand that much pain. But it's been... It's been a it's been a good choice for for me and us, uh, and it just feels so good to just put that in people's hands. And even better when people, you know, contact me and ask, can they get twenty copies or or ten, or uh, can they get one sent to you know to a certain prison or juvenile facility for their son or nephew or grandson or somebody's kid they know. Um, and outside of those spaces, I rarely even talk about it. Um, and I think part of it because it's, it's so personal uh, but I love the poems in it I love reading them uh, they read well some of them are very entertaining particularly the one about my brother that you know, recants his his kind of pre-drug life he was a, a Michael Jackson imitator and he won at least three talent shows impersonating Michael Jackson the dance, the singing, he can do all of that. You know, he this 
this kid, uh, we always say he was the most handsome, he was the smartest, he was the most talented, the most athletic of all of us. Mm-hmm. And drugs stole that from him. So will you read Domesticated? Yeah, you would find the most painful poem in the book. But, uh, <laughs> we have, but since I've already set it, we have, already uh, set it up, uh, I'll just say that my brother liked to blame me for his addiction. He liked to say that uh, I had carved out such a place for myself ahead of him in school that he, he wanted so much not to be little Frank or Frank's anything that whatever I did, he would do the opposite or run from. You know, so it's called domesticated. He is methodical and patient until his hunger kicks in. Then he is relentless, extremely driven, obstinate, and almost always successful. I marvel at his resourcefulness his improvisational skills, his ability to quiet the code, pain, distance, rules, locks, family duties and obligations. I envy that. I want to be that hungry in search of a poem. He is an architect of dreams. I am simply a construction worker with words. We both give up every day searching for something to open us up, something dark and lonely, something worth excavating, something that might free us both. He is a self-taught artist, part hyena, coyote, and wolf. I am simply the Academy's pet dog. Ugh. Yeah, all that shared history, you know, just, I mean, those poems just bring it right to the surface. I think for me, you know, people ask me, you know, how do you know when a poem is doing what it's supposed to do? Um, if you feel something as a listener or a reader, I feel something every time I read it. I mean, it's almost like it just happened. And my brother and I don't spend much time together, you know. We see each other at funerals and some holidays and hospital visits. But we have a hard time being in the same space. It sounds in, in that poem there, I don't know if I'm hearing it projecting on you, but there's, a, it sounds like there's some compassion or, I don't know, it's a, it's a different, the way you describe him is, maybe it's not compassion. I've described being someone who loves someone in addiction mm. as the, the like a, a second address in hell, mm. but being... Being in addiction is is very much a hell, and and loving someone in addiction is just another yeah. another address in hell. Another another kind of um, hell, yeah. Especially yeah. if you and if you love so much, you take on their responsibilities. You know? Which we almost almost you have everyone to do. does. I mean you that have to do. that whole thing. What what I heard is is this maybe a screaming out from you about about being a prisoner in that way and also this sort of interesting compassion for his his affliction or his his addiction and I don't well, know. there's a lot of layers it, it, in that it's, poem. It's very layered. I mean it is as layered as understanding addiction because I think most people in the beginning, you know, we think it's a personal choice and there's a lot of anger. You know, if you just make better choices, if you just make better choices. Uh, but then once you grow to understand how powerful addiction is, then 
I mean, that opens up a window for sympathy and, and empathy even. Yeah, well, you, you know, that the upside, I suppose, is creating art out of that is a gift that you can, you can transform that darkness into something that like you have been giving to other people. And man, sometimes it just, it does take reading a poem or a piece of literature or seeing even seeing someone speak in the way that reaches you and it can change, it can change the trajectory of someone's life, which has a multiplier effect. So, you know, there's, there's that, there is some, some lining in that. Careful to say sometimes, some lining. Because <laughs> uh, that's the truth. Sometimes, yeah. some lining. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, true. I mean, I've been around long enough to have... I used to think, or in I would say in my early recovery, I wanted to think that I did it. That I it was because of my efforts and my strengths and my will and my choices. And the longer I go on, the more I see it as not that Mm -hmm. it's grace and yeah I've I've had to make choices but I've had enough people die or just not make it not get sober and they had it it just doesn't make sense you know it's it's there isn't a there is no logical reasoning to it and that's just how it is and there are a lot of things about the current COVID experience that is traumatic for me because it takes me back to similar conversations and energy situations that almost call it the same kind of thing. You see people uh, in denial about whether or not a vaccine makes a difference uh, or that people are dying, you know, everywhere. Uh, and they're still saying, well, it's a hoax. I'm like, you know, you don't, I understand that you don't believe, but I, I don't understand why you don't believe. Yeah, well, I think the feelings that you're feeling, I, I, it's, it's, it's being very out of control. Yeah. It's, it's a total, we're totally out of control. Powerlessness is, is. Powerlessness. Is something else. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's one way to say it. Uh, So I thought maybe we'd end on having you read from last will last testament is a book and that's the book in a row of the birth of your son as i understand it with your father's passing yes yes so we wanted to have you read eclipse but if there's anything you'd like to say about it you know uh, there's a lot i can say about this book but i think that uh, it was a really hard book to write but because i was in this strange place with my father leaving the planet because of stage four cancer and the effects of, of chemo that seemed to make him worse. And my son on the way into the world, it just, I think what sealed it for me was on the way to the hospital with my wife and in labor, I got a call from home that my father was going to the emergency room. So they were, the exit and entrance seemed like linked, psychically linked. And my biggest fear, because we were living in Washington, D.C. at the time, and my father was in the hospital in Danville, Kentucky, so nine hours apart, was that they would not meet each other. And, you know, so I made a decision that they had to meet each other. And they had to see each other twice, well, almost twice. Uh, Second time, my father had already passed when we were at the funeral. Uh, But the first time, you know, they spent about an hour together, you know, while he was in his bed and trying not to look unhealthy. And it was, 
it was such an interesting and difficult and challenging and beautiful moment. But I'd already started writing my way through the whole challenge. And then after he passed, I couldn't stop because I saw the impact on other members of the family. And not unlike the masked men black, you know, there, there was enough work there for a, a collection. So uh, I wanted to honor both of them, the arrival and the, and the exit of this book. And all of us are in this one poem called Eclipse. Uh, there are probably a dozen poems where the three of us show up at the same time. Um, one of the things I appreciated about DNA uh, was, is looking at my father's hands uh, and looking at my son's hands and knowing that they both are smaller and larger versions of my own hand. You know, even our toenails and toes look alike. So DNA is a beautiful thing. So eclipse. This troika, a sun and a moon and a planet, three black Russian nesting dolls, a father, a son, and a man almost a ghost, the beginning, middle, and end of a complicated drama, gather here, smiling. It is not something spoken aloud, but the entire room witnesses them holding each other with the same starlit almond eyes, the same ringing oversized hands. They all understand this rare celestial alignment will only happen once in their lifetime. Last will, last testament. Mm. I think we, we got to end there. I don't think I can add anything to that. Thank you so much. This has been, I, I, I even forgot how hot it was. <laughs> so it's been really, really nice to have this time with you. I, I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed it as well. Thank you for your interest and, and for sharing your story too. So uh, you made it easy to talk to. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, previews of upcoming guests, invites to join me for members-only events, and access to our members-only community where I hang out a lot, especially now that I'm not on social media. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means that we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want. But it also means we're 100% reliant on your support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member or you can simply make a one-time donation of as little as $5. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $5 please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True.